0: This morning we're continuing in the second chapter of the book of Galatians. It's on page 824 if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews. Um, there's also a sermon outline, of course, in the bulletin. The letter, of course, of the, that we call Galatians uh, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this group of baby churches that were in present-day Turkey. Turkey around the middle of the first century AD. We know that Paul had planted these churches on his first missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. But now it seems that these new Christians are in trouble. So Paul is writing this letter to express his concern through encouragement, through correction, through instruction, and this morning particularly through confrontation. Confrontation. Section includes two parts that we'll look at this morning. The first is sort of this autobiographical story, in which Paul is talking about this confrontation that he had, this sort of throwdown between apostles, for Peter and Paul. And then the second part of the of the um, passage this morning is an explanation about the gospel. What is this gospel that is at stake? That is, uh, in, that you know, is is being is the source of the controversy for this problem. So, uh, we'll look at these two different sections. We saw last week from the beginning of of chapter 2 of Galatians that Paul had met with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, including Peter, James, John, and some of the others. They seemed to agree with Paul about the content of his message, about the gospel that he was preaching, particularly as he was preaching it to non-Jewish people. The agreement was that these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, didn't have to become like Jews in order to be Christians. In other words, the followers of Jesus, who weren't from a Jewish background, didn't have to obey the rituals of the Old Testament. But this was not something that you just have to say once and everybody gets it. And this is what wasn't free from controversy, as we'll see this morning. So, hear these words with me as we look at Uh, Galatians 2, starting in verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if, the righteousness, if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we need you to be our teacher as we encounter these words. We need you to guide us through your spirit, to show us what is true. Help me to say what is true and help us all to discern how you would change us as a result, how we, how we can respond to this good news for us this morning. We pray that you would indeed speak, help us to listen, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Think about it a little bit. Some of the great events in history, some of turning points of human history, some things that really changed how the events went maybe the result of the decisions of just one person or the decisions of very few people even something as complicated as the american revolution and the formation of our constitution and our system of government with all of the different kinds of factors that were involved all of the different groups all of the different people all of the different ideas about how nations should work all of those things were probably you know the fruit and the work the foundation was laid by probably a kind of a small number of people, historically speaking. Isn't that interesting if we think about it? And, and in the recent uh, Broadway musical about Alexander Hamilton, there's a song about how Aaron Burr... You know, Aaron Burr was Hamilton's rival. He was the senator from New York. Eventually, he became the vice president during Thomas Jefferson's first term as president. But there's this song about how Burr desperately wanted to be in the room where it happens... He wanted to be an influencer. He wanted to be one of this small group of people who were making decisions. And in that time, you know, it was, this was Washington's cabinet. And this small group of people who were trying to establish a new nation. He knew, Burr did, according to the musical, I mean, we're not talking about... He knew that there was an inner circle, you know, that there was this group of people who were pulling the levers, uh, you know, and moving the the strings and, you know, and making uh, a new nation uh, have a course and steering it. So, in a way that I was thinking about this, in a way that might be a bit similar, you know, we just have a handful of people who wrote the New Testament. You know, we seem to have this idea that there was a small number of leaders in the early church. They were the apostles. They were the ones who planted churches. They were the ones who charted the course of our faith. Those who were with Jesus had a significant influence on the early church. And clearly this is different from the founding of America, right? The writings of the New Testament are not like the U.S. Constitution, aren't inspired by God. Don't confuse the two. But the point for today is, that we have this fascinating look into the room where it happens, into this confrontation between two of the leaders of the church in which they have to work out what does the gospel mean. They have to work out this issue, and they'll continue to work it out. As we'll see in Acts 15 and other places, there continues to be this working out among these people, what is it that Jesus gave us? And how do we live it out fully and completely in line with the gospel? Before we get to the actual confrontation, I want to set the scene a little bit more with our journey with Peter. Because, you you know, we're talking about Jewish and Gentile relations from the first century. And so we have to kind of get our heads around this a little bit. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Judaism that we know now is very different from Judaism of the first century. And it's not clear at this point... The following Jesus is going to take you into this new religion. It's still this, like, within Judaism, there's this conflict about, was Jesus the Messiah or not? And those boundaries are continuing to be sort of worked out. But for this passage, we remember that the Old Testament had lots of rules about diet and about health and about washing for people to be ceremonially clean in order to participate in worship and in the society. So, if you go back to Leviticus, you can read about how if you had skin diseases, or if you had recently touched a dead body, or if you had eaten unclean things, you know, all of these kinds of things would make you unclean, and then you had to become purified in order to participate in worship. That's the Old Testament. When, we, when Jesus begins to talk about some of these things, he interprets them in a way that is sort of symbolic that these laws picture the cleanness before God that would be required of us to be in God's presence. If God is holy and we're sinful, we need to symbolize what does it look like for us to be clean before God. But Jesus said that that external cleanness, this hand-washing and all of these things, wasn't really the issue. Jesus said unclean foods don't defile you. What comes out of your heart defiles you. The inside of the person Jesus said, is what really needs to be clean. And you can look at a great passage example of this in Mark chapter 7. But these Old Testament laws about ceremonial cleanness were the background of some of these Jewish customs that go even beyond the laws, which governed the, the way that Jews related to Gentiles in the way that they avoided contact with them and the way that they wouldn't particularly share meals with them. In Acts 10 and 11... We read this amazing story of how Peter, who grew up in this way, grew up in this way that you don't share meals and fellowship with uh, non-Jewish people and that you don't eat things that are unclean, he has this vision in which God shows him all of these different foods and says, everything is clean now, and then uh, there's a man named Cornelius who who uh, You know, an angel appears to him, and he comes, you know, Peter comes. It's a great story. Read it in Acts 10 and 11. But what happens is Peter shares, Peter comes into Cornelius' house. He shares the message about Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people. Peter says that, you know, they, they should be baptized. He stays with them and teaches them. But when Peter returns to Jerusalem, the church leaders say, you ate with Gentiles. You fellowshiped with them. And what does Peter say? He says, God did it. This is an amazing thing. God God is showing us that what is clean, or what makes you unclean isn't, isn't the case anymore, that these ceremonial laws don't apply, that God is pouring out the Spirit on the Gentiles. And so I put a couple passages from Acts here, because Peter was saying to the people in Cornelius' house, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. And the testimony of the, you know, so Peter returns, he shares this testimony. Uh, they, They realize the magnitude of this event. And at the end of Peter's testimony, they say, it says, they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The point of all this is that Peter and the Jerusalem church understood that cleanness before God comes from repentance and faith in Jesus that goes to the heart and that leads to life. It doesn't come from ceremonial laws. This event happens long before Galatians 2 that we read about here in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy... Even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? It's hard to understand how dramatic this kind of confrontation must have been. The language that Paul's using is so specific. And, you know, again, this is the sort of behind-the-scenes look at what's really going on. And Paul is so fired up because he knows that Peter should know better. Peter knows that the ceremonial rules about food and fellowship have been overcome in the new Christian community. The traditional boundary markers between, not, between Jewish person and non-Jewish person, these great cultural divides, are not greater than the newfound unity in the gospel of Jesus. These boundary markers and Jewish customs should not cause separation anymore. And this is going against the agreement that they had in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, that the Gentiles didn't have to do all of these Jewish rituals, that they didn't have to become Jewish in order to be Christians, right? So for Paul, this is a crisis. This is a situation in which a pillar of the church is acting with hypocrisy that Peter is acting one way with the Gentiles. He's fellowshipping with them, he's encouraging them, he's treating them as equals, and he's acting like a Gentile. But when then these other guys arrive, Peter draws back because he's afraid. It's ugly, isn't it? It's ethnic, cultural, racial superiority. It's you won't be my friend when your other friends are around it's i guess we're not good enough for you are we or maybe it's you guys aren't really in the club there's there are christians and then there are christians right and we know how this kind of things work works because we live it like because of fear of criticism we can change our behavior It can be really ugly for us too, right? It's hard to be a loyal friend when other people start making fun of your friend. Are you going to stand up for them? Are you going to just stay out of it? Do you want to be the one who's being made fun of too, right? And we naturally tend to think that people like us, and however we define that in a whole host of different ways, are really better than other people sort of just the way we see the world from our sinful perspective. And we have lots of ways of separating our tribe from other tribes, whether that's based on your NFL football loyalties or, you know, whatever it is, right? We separate into tribes. And Peter, so Peter isn't doing something unheard of. It's fear of man, and it's self-preservation, and it's tribalism. And I don't think he really believed these things about Jewish superiority or something. I just think he's not acting in line with the gospel. He's not walking straight and upright. And so for Paul, this is a gospel issue. It goes to the heart of the matter. And, you know, we've read Paul's letters. There are lots of issues that he addresses in the churches, but he doesn't call all of them gospel issues in the same way. This is a fundamental issue. If they miss this point then they lose the gospel. If you think that certain kinds of people are better Christians than other kinds of people, if you think that you can change Jesus' message to make it acceptable to your tribe, you can sort of co-opt him into what's really your tribe, right? If you think that faith in Christ isn't enough, then you're in danger of losing the gospel. And you may have already lost it. And so this conflict with Peter is this, right, it's this teachable moment that's the same situation happening in the Galatian church. What do the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament mean for followers of Jesus? Do, does washing and food and the rest still apply? The the New Testament says no. Jesus said no. Paul says no. And Peter's caught in the old way of tradition. He's placing emphasis on the external. He's bowing to the fear of men. He's separating into an us versus them kind of mentality. He's adding a requirement to being a Christian. That's what Paul says here. You're forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. You're saying it's not enough to just believe in Jesus. So, our behind the scenes look gives you know, it's messy. <laughs> the relationships must have been strained. Paul, you know, he's forthright. He's confrontational. And we don't really know exactly what happened next. Did Peter repent? Did Barnabas repent? You know, was there this come-to-Jesus moment there? Or did that take a while? The good news is, you know, to sort of finish the story, some kind of reconciliation must have happened. In 2 Peter, Probably written a decade later or more, Peter calls Paul a dear brother. And he calls his writings authoritative as scripture from God for the church. The confrontation and loving re- rebuke in the body of Christ wasn't the end of a relationship, wasn't a permanent break. And that is an example that we see for us, and it should be true that we can, as God works in us, overcome. Uh, difficulties in our relationships. That's the confrontation. Let's look on uh, in verse 15. We get this transition that Paul is moving from the autobiographical part and into the threats about the truth of the gospel. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker, In this section, Paul introduces key terms which we haven't seen yet in the letter. Most of these terms we haven't seen yet in the letter, but they're central for his message. Law, faith, works of the law, justified, righteousness, to believe, to live. All of these things get introduced here in this section because that's what the letter is about. And of course, we're not going to go through all of them this morning. We still have four chapters to go, right? But we find ourselves here at the central issue. And another thing that I never noticed before until this week is in in our pew Bibles at least, the quotation, the paraphrase of Paul to Peter continues from verse 15 until verse 21. Now we don't know, I mean, there's not punctuation in ancient Greek manuscripts, so we don't know if... If Paul is continuing this quotation, but the idea of it, I think there's a connection here that he may be continuing to talk uh, and describe what that confrontation was like as it goes. In verse 15 and 16, Paul says, "Even those who are Jewish by birth, you know, we, sin, you know, he's he's talking maybe with Peter, recognize that in the coming of Christ, one can't be justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus." justification, of course, is a word we don't use all the time, but it means to be declared righteous, to be declared clean, to be holy, to be upright, to, you know, vindicate or acquit someone. When Paul talks about observing the law, he means doing the works of the law, that is doing what the law requires, which in the Old Testament sense meant to keep the ceremonial laws, particularly those that separated God's people from everyone else. So the heart of the issue, again, is faith in Jesus enough for God to declare us not guilty? Or do we need to add works of the law in order to get in or in order to stay in? Probably this is the context of more likely that they have to work to stay in to the Christian community and to stay in a right relationship with God. Do we have to add works of the law in order to stay in a right relationship with God. And these verses make it very clear that, that we don't, that faith in Jesus is the way to be clean before God. Verses 17 and 18 are kind of difficult to, to see precisely how they fit in. Paul seems to mean it's not the case that my coming to recognize my sin because of Christ means that Christ promotes sin. Rather, if I put myself back under the authority of the law, then I prove that I'm a lawbreaker because I'm reestablishing the power of the law in my life, the the law that Christ already fulfilled. So for Jewish believers to place themselves back under the law is to nullify that Christ fulfilled the law for you, that he died to remove the law's requirements for you. And so it's not a sin to request to reject the requirements of the law for salvation. It's a sin to rebuild the requirements of the law and impose them on the Gentiles. The final section, Paul gives us this beautiful picture of a new identity in the gospel in verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Through his understanding that he couldn't meet the demands of the law, Paul says he died to the law. Paul was raised as a Pharisee. The picture of the Pharisees that emerge in in their conversations with Jesus, right, is they're people who live for the law. They felt that they obeyed it most precisely, that they cared more than anyone else. They felt that they were satisfied in their accomplishment of it. But Paul says, I died to the law so that I could live for God. He describes it in life and death terms. Identification with Jesus in his crucifixion. On the cross. Paul's old life was over. It was put to death. With Jesus. So that the life of Jesus could live in him. And the only way that this works, right, is that Paul is saying that resurrection power of Christ was at work in him. Living through him expressed in faith. Verse 21 ends our passage and gives us this introduction of the word grace. To set aside the grace of God would be to think that cleanness before God could be gained through the law, and if so, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus died because cleanness before God could only be ours by the grace of God as a free gift and with no strings attached. The Christian message didn't change the world by just embracing a new set of rules to try to stay on God's good side. That's just religion. And the Christian message didn't change the world by just embracing a new set of rules so that we could try to stay on God's side and earn his favor. So we think about application, I want you to know that you need to be clean before God in order to relate to him. The good news begins with knowing the bad news, that you aren't right with God by default, and that you need to be forgiven. And this isn't self-evident in our world, right? Our world thinks if there's a God, well, he probably thinks I'm better than average, right? I mean, you know, he kind of loves everybody, right? That's his job. I mean, that's what people really think. People value authenticity, and we're called to be the humble people who always remember and always speak about the fact that we, re- that we, not they, that we really, really need forgiveness. And that counteracts the stereotype of the self-righteous, finger-pointing Christian that we're so prone to walk into, right? I want you to know that. I want you to believe today that Jesus gives you cleanness, that Jesus gives you a clean slate, He canceled the list of regulations that was against you. The debts that you couldn't pay, he paid as a gift. His clean takes away your dirt, right? In the Gospels, we see Jesus breaking the ceremonial cleanness rules, right? He touches lepers. Does that make him unclean? No, that makes the leper clean. He heals the outcasts and the sinners. He goes to eat you know, fellowship with non-Jews, you know, all of those things that Jesus did. Because people don't make him unclean. He makes people clean. You can't stain Jesus with your dirt, your shame, your lust, your pride, your lies, your hypocrisy. He takes it all away if you trust and believe in him. And you can't get clean in any other way. What do we do as a result of the sermon this morning? Meditate on or memorize, or and memorize this, the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Unpack that in your mind this week. The hardest part about putting the message together for me this week and the struggle I had was to try to sort of take us beyond Christian platitudes and simple statements to get to the heart of it. You know, we've said a hundred times, we're saved by faith in Jesus, works of the law don't give us righteousness. I mean, there are four more chapters to go. We'll say it a lot more. I'm happy to say it a hundred more times. But what does that really mean in our lives? How can we backslide in a way against the grace of the gospel in the ways that we think, in the ways that we live? Peter didn't all of a sudden, I don't think, you know, think that he could earn his salvation through works of the law, and yet he was acting in an un-gospel kind of way. He was acting like external behaviors, like cultural markers, were as were as important as a changed heart inside. The forgiveness of God wasn't enough. He was acting like he had to add these other things to it, or else he would be criticized. And in the face of criticism, he lost his principles. Do we do the same thing? If so, it probably doesn't look like snubbing people based on what they eat, but what does it look like? I'm just going to ask some questions. Do you feel guilty that you don't do enough activity around the church? You probably don't the week after the fall festival, but think of the other 51 weeks of the year. Like, do you feel like you should do more because you want to look spiritual before others or because you don't want to get criticized for being a second-class Christian citizen or because you think God will love you more? Do you think that God is happier with you If you have a sort of a devotional time or prayer time every day, each morning, do you think God's happier with you if you do that? Is that part of the way that you feel like you are a good Christian? These things are good, but they can be works in the law, works of the law in your heart, relating to God as though there's this transaction going on. If I do these things, then he'll be happy with me. Do you believe that your children will fall away from the faith if you don't pray enough? Your prayers are works of the law that keep God doing what you want Him to do. And if He doesn't do something, then it's probably your fault, right? Right, we can think that way, really, that, that it depends on us to pray enough in order for God to do the thing that we want Him to do. Do you live in fear that you'll be hopelessly contaminated by the world in which everything is a slippery slope that leads to sin? Do you feel like you have to project an image of having a together kind of Christian life, but you really know inside you're sort of falling apart? And the more that you're struggling with doubt or fear, the more that you hate the hypocrisy of trying to present an image that you're a happy Christian, but this is your work of the law, because You think faith isn't enough. The passage tells us that faith is enough. The life I live in the body, Paul says, this earthly life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. The gospel message doesn't come with a treadmill to make us keep trying to earn our place in the tribe. The Son of God loves you. He gave himself for you. He knows you. He bought you. He gave himself for you. So you can be free in the gospel. We know who God is making us to be. And we live by faith that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and our frailness and our discouragements. We know what it is to be people who feel our limits and to know we can't keep going. And God knows that too. He's not a taskmaster that you can never please. He's your heavenly father. He sees you as righteous in his son Jesus. Grace means that you can depend on him and not depend on yourself. Grace means that you're not an orphan in this world. Grace means that you're secure. Grace means that you're free. I gave away a lot of cotton candy yesterday, and it was so great when people would say, Can I pay for this? And I could say, No, everything here is free. We've been given a gift, and we want to share something, a taste of that, with you, because it's free. And the table proclaims this to us, too, that there's a free gift for all who hunger and thirst. The bread of life has been broken and is offered to you. Memorize it this week. Jesus loves you. He gave himself for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for good news this morning. We do want this to change us. We pray that you would work deeply within us, that we would uh, embrace the message, this countercultural message, this radical message, the message, if we've grown up in the church, that we may have heard a, a thousand times, but the message that tells us that you love us and that you uh, have grace in abundance for your people. As we prepare for the table, we ask that you would root these things in us. And, uh, Help us to examine ourselves rightly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.